Welcome everybody to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan. We're back with your co-host Corey. How are you doing, co-host Corey? Hello. I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. A busy life and a busy mind right now, but uh I'm checking some things off my to-do list, so that feels good. And I've got a great team of people around me, and that feels even better. So I'm really happy to be here with you and our guest today. Tell us who is joining us. Today we have Helen Jennings, and uh, she's a member of Mums Stop the Harm. That's an organization here in BC. And we've been trying for a little while to get somebody from your organization, Helen, to come on and kind of tell us about it and uh, give us a a rundown on what goes on with uh, Mums Stop the Harm, and uh, you appear to be the lady for the job. So welcome. Thank you. We will uh, start on that note. You are a member here in Kelowna. We're in the we're in the same city, and uh, we spoke a little while ago. Had went for coffee, and you told me a little bit about your story and what you got what got you involved with a, a couple different programs. But uh, the one is Mum Stop the Harm. Can you tell us? A little bit about the organization, what their mission is, and what you're specifically trying to accomplish with the uh, with with their program. Sure. So we were primarily Western Canadian mothers that had all uh, lost children to drug harms, and uh, we had three founders: two from Edmonton. Petra Schultz and Lorna Thomas, and then Leslie McBain from Pender Island. They had all met at UnGas in New York and decided that we really needed to form a group in uh, British Columbia to combat the the failed war on drugs. So uh, they got together and started Mom Stop the Harm. And as I said, we were primarily Western Canadian moms, but soon realized that we had to open that up to uh, all loved ones, dads and siblings and grandparents and and brothers and sisters. And, you know, it also, we had a huge indication that we had to go nationwide. So we're cross, cross Canada. So, you know, basically now we're a network of families in, impacted by deaths due to substance harms. And we advocate for compassionate evidence-based changes to drug policy that will protect the lives of people that use substances. And we also provide peer support for families grieving after the loss of someone due to a drug harm. And we also provide support for families with loved ones in active addiction. So we've, you know, we've grown and, and have our umbrella groups, our Stronger Together groups. As far as our, our mission or our goal, we call for an end to the failed war on, on drugs through, as I said, evidence-based prevention, treatment, and policy changes. And we support harm reduction approach that is both compassionate and non-discriminatory for people who use substances. And we believe that people that are using substances should be uh, treated with compassion and respect and no differently than any other uh, medical issue. We want to decriminalize this situation, take it out of the legal justice system and put it in the health system where it belongs. So I was the 12th member to join in um, about April of 2016 after the loss of my second son, Tyler. And now to date, there are about 3,700 members uh, across Canada. Oh, wow. wow. So, I didn't, uh, I didn't realize it had gotten that large. That's uh, oh, yeah. huge that's, growth. that's good. Yeah. That that's a positive, uh, a positive thing to hear and see. Yeah. I wonder, so uh, do you have a specific role in Kelowna that you play or are you, or are you just, I know you mentioned well, that be- you've got. Go yeah. Ahead. Because, because I was the 12th member, I ended up being kind of the regional leadership mom. So I started off very slowly by myself. First thing I did, I think, was went to the mayor and and got August 31st declared as International Overdose Awareness Day in Kelowna and uh, in perpetuity. So then I started building on we, we need to recognize this date and 
Uh, slowly, I met other mums. I reached out to mums, you know, it was always in the paper when there were losses. And so I have anywhere from 12 to 19 mums that kind of come and go as their grief allows them to help with uh, any kind of events or any kind of things we want to open up to the public and um you know, whether it be speaking in, in schools to school age children about substance use or uh, having events like uh, we did on April 13th, which was the declaration of the state of emergency in British Columbia. So I am the go-to mom that is kind of the gatherer and weaver of our, our group and things are, you know, run by me. And then we, uh, put it to our group of mums, can we actually get out there and do this? I'm also a member of our community action team. So the community action team, if you know anything about them, there's many key players from harm reduction teams and John Howard Society be involved and Turning Point would be involved and IH would be involved and Can Do. And we all come together to discuss different ways to approach this toxic drug crisis. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like you're, uh, you're pretty busy. You also mentioned that you've got a bunch of uh, peer support groups and I, I didn't realize how many of those that you had, that your organization had put together. You said there's nearly 20 or something different groups. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. We really like to involve the peers in, you know, who can better tell us, about the journey of substance use than than peers and people with lived experience. It also helps them if whether they're still in active use or working towards recovery, the connection really helps them. And we know that the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm -hmm. So it's that's a real driving force for me is to be connected with moms that are suffering, with families that are suffering, with people on the street that are suffering you know, to connect to them uh, uh, as often as possible and um, tell them they're not alone and there really are people that care. Right. Is there any way that uh, if, if somebody was looking to help with that uh, peer support model, say in a facilitator role or they were looking to uh, to connect with somebody through your organization, would they be able to do that just by uh, going on the Mom Stop the Harm website or... Right. And, you know, we're always looking for facilitators for our support groups. So we have Healing Hearts, which supports families that have lost a loved one, and Holding Hope, which supports families that have a loved one in active substance use. And we're trying to develop uh, both these groups in as many communities throughout Br British Columbia as we can. We did get a, a grant to do this work, and then we we also ponied up with uh, Interior Health and contracted with them to develop mostly the holding hope focused on youth in the Interior Health region. So we're really busy with those groups. We probably have 15 to 17 of both those groups in British Columbia at the moment. Uh, in remote communities where it's hard to find a facilitator and build these groups, we have uh, virtual uh, meetings over Zoom. So yeah, we we try to be as available to as many people as possible. So you can go to first our Mom Stop the Harm website, and then you will see Stronger Together there with our Holding Hope and Healing Hearts. And it'll say find a group in your region. And um, yeah, you can connect to us that way. And if okay. anybody's ever interested in the facilitator role, we do some fairly great uh, training and support for that. So our only requirement for a facilitator is that you belong to Mom Stop the Harm because we need to know you're on the same page with our visions and goals and that you have lost someone to drug harms or holding hope have lived with uh, someone in active use. So, you know, your lived experience is all a part of your support. Right. That sounds like uh, quite the undertaking and good for you for taking on such a role. That can't be easy. And that's, uh, I imagine, like you said, you're, you're probably getting a little bit of uh, support yourself through that, but it's also logistically probably pretty challenging. 
I know when we spoke before, you mentioned that you were for a while on the inquiry committee for the uh, the College of Pharmacy of BC. Is that a role that you you still hold as a, a public board member? And uh, what got you involved in that, if if that's the case? Well, I can't, I can't even remember how I got the application, but it was to have a public member that, that would sit on the inquiry committee. So when there are complaints about a pharmacist or pharmacy, it, it, it will go in front of the, the college and they'll do a big investigation. And then they take it out to five a five-member panel. Uh, two would be pharmacists, one would be a pharmacy technician, and then two public members. So we go through the whole incident, you know, start to finish. And then we get together as a panel and we decide, you know, what should happen uh, with this pharmacist, whether it's remedial or, you know, it's very egregious and we need to do something further. And it gave me a voice in a world that I understood quite well, because both my grandfather and father were pharmacists. But I, I was always interested in, you know, medication and what it was used for and what the side effects might be. And so, yeah, I've had a voice there and and have been able to bring some of my lived experience to that. I've been in that position for five years. Uh, I just entered my sixth year, which is you, six is the max you can do. So uh, a- April of 24, I'll be finished with the college. But it's amazing to work for the college. I've learned a lot. I've always had a deep respect for the profession. I have an even deeper one. The guidelines and the rules that that pharmacies and pharmacists have to follow are really intense and with, you know, protection of public in mind. Can you tell us about your son, Ryan? He was, uh, he's your eldest son, I believe, uh, that you lost and it was a prescription overdose in 2012. Did that have something to do with those guidelines uh, not being followed? Or was there, is that something that motivated you to, to, to take on that role? Or how did that work? Well, so Ryan, you know, was a really sweet kid. A little bit shy, uh, reserved. He was diagnosed with ADHD when he was about 13 and had some social anxiety. And I think just had a hard time finding where he fit in the whole world. And um, of course started to self-medicate with alcohol and, and then substances, you know, it was like, don't fit in, but have a couple of beer. And now I'm the life of the party and everybody likes me. And, and that escalated into drug use. And this is back in 1987 when, you know, drugs were real drugs. You know, MD, MDA was MDA and mescaline was mescaline. And, you know, it was. Mm-hmm. And so he dabbled in all of it, I think. And I don't know to the depths of everything because, you know, kids hide so much from their parents. So we went through many years of his substance use and all the issues that it caused for him. And I started looking for, you know, support and help. And I think we had one child psychologist in town at that time. And, and which was uh, the, the advice back then, you know, when I look at it was, was just so archaic and ridiculous. And anyways, when he was about 26, he got into a 12 step program. And for eight years, he was uh, alcohol and stuff, substance free, and uh, really into his program, li- really loving the life. And then as on his last motorcycle ride of the season, he was hit by a truck making an illegal left hand turn and his leg was crushed between the truck and the motorbike motorbike and they really probably should have amputated his leg but they left it. And the next three years, he was subject to about four surgeries, a bunch of surgeries trying to um, get his ankle kind of back together and uh, a hip replacement and he needed another hip replacement and they were going to have to replace the knee. So along with all those surgeries came a very long list of medications and at the very top was narcotics. And so, you know, his old demons 
I'm sure kicked in. Uh, not that Ryan didn't abuse his medication. He was really good about taking it when he was supposed to. And But every, and I'm sure Nathan, you know this, every medication has a side effect. And for every side effect, there's another medication. So one of the side effects of the narcotics was he couldn't sleep and he was very, he was agitated. He had high anxiety. So they gave him benzodiazepines and, and he was on Effexor and he was on Topramate and he was on Tramaz, uh, um, Trazodone. And I did, I, I can't even tell you the long list. We had gone away for a family weekend and Ryan didn't want to come because six hours in the car was very hard on his hip. So he stayed at home and I think at some point at the beginning of that weekend, he uh, maybe tried to feel a little better and he used some cocaine. So when uh, I got home, uh, I called him, wasn't feeling very well. He said he had a headache and he was going to go to bed. And I said I'd be over the next morning to bring him, you know, his freezer food. And I always cleaned up his apartment and we played cards and was kind of my way of keeping on top of how he was doing. And um, to make a long story short, I couldn't get a hold of him by phone for uh, a length of time in the morning. So I decided to go over to his apartment. And um, I could tell from, from the doorway, because I could see into the bedroom that Ryan had passed away at some time during the night. So um, he was propped up in his bed uh, with his computer on his lap. He'd been reading something, which I tried so hard to find the history to see what he was reading and why that was important to me. I don't know. But um, he had fallen asleep and just hadn't wakened up. The combination of the narcotics and the, the um, benzodiazepines had caused respiratory depression. And um, so the toxicology report did show the metabolite of cocaine in there, but the highest uh, was the um, narcotics and um, the benzodiazepines. So this was all very interesting to me that there was so many things in the toxicology report. So I went to Pharmanet and I asked to see my son's Pharmanet records for a certain length of time. And I was absolutely shocked at all the things he was on. And I would ask my, my dad, you know, what, what, what's this and what was it for? And I would Google things and, you know, my understanding of all these drugs and the combinations of these drugs was a person that had never had a substance use problem uh, and wasn't suffering with anxiety and depression could not have managed that list of, of, so I decided that Pharmanet had not been used appropriately in Ryan's care. That if anybody had been looking at a regular basis at Ryan's Pharmanet records, it should have sent up red flags all over the place that this boy was at high risk for exactly what ha happened to him. So I then, my first thing I ever did in 2000, Ryan died in 2011. In 2012, I challenged, I went to, um, what was it called, Go Public with CBC and challenged uh, the whole use of, of Pharmanet. So that was really my first move into advocacy and giving people like Ryan that were in substance use a voice because we all know there's still little to no help out there mm -hmm. for, for anybody struggling with, with these issues. Mm -hmm. You know, Helen, it makes me think of the two, well, there's more than, there are several sides of that whole spectrum that either so often there's a, a mismanagement of chronic pain secondary to stigma, or in this case, just a, like you said, a, a, a negligence in recognizing what may actually be, be going on. And I guess I have a, a few questions. Were you angry at the doctors at that time? Did you have any conversations with the doctors? 
His physician called me the morning after he died and said, I had no idea Ryan was abusing his meds. Did you? And I said, mm. I had no idea what meds he was on. Ryan was 37 at the time, mm -hmm. you know, and although we were very close and he would come to me a lot of times when he wasn't feeling right and he was very frustrated with his care and she doesn't listen to me and she doesn't understand what I'm saying. I did not know you know, exactly what he was on. So I thought her move, her call to me was very defensive. It was a very defensive move. She asked me if there was anything she could do for me. And I said, never again, you know, I, I, uh, I went to my ex family physician who was still working in the hospital. And I said to him, I, I need another doctor. I will, I won't, I won't have anything to do with with her, I did bring her up before the College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons, and she got remedial disposition. She had to take a course in the safe uh, prescribing of opiates and also one in understanding and managing chronic pain. The college was very critical of her prescribing, particularly the amount of narcotics Ryan was given. The other thing I didn't understand about it all was I was very vocal from the day Ryan got hit from the motorcycle about his substance use issues and that we, I, he legitimate, legitimately needed things for pain and it had to be monitored so well, or I knew where this would, you know, lead back to. And I just didn't understand how they would give somebody that had had a problem with substances 90 hydromorph at a time. Mm. And he was taking four Zopiclone a day, Exoxapam and, and hydromorph. And, wow. and that, you know, just those three things that I know about it, it, Ryan should have had daily pickups or deliveries or, blister packs at, mm. at the least. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was all handled or mishandled and I thought his death was very preventable had um, someone been diligent and done their job properly. Helen being as connected to the community of individuals who have lost loved ones today do you see that same defensiveness from the medical community? Do you see some of the same concerns or have, have any, has anything changed in that respect from what you've seen? Well, you know, it's, it's very different now that, you know, the people I'm in contact with now are, are in, are in deep, deep addiction and it's, the toxic supply that's killing them. It's, it's Ryan's situation was, was so different and he didn't die from a toxic supply. He, he just died from, from really poor management and carelessness from, um, you know, physicians in my mind had gotten to this, you got five minutes. And if I can't refer you to a specialist, I'm going to get out my prescription pad and, and write you a prescription. And you know, we saw the guidelines change in 2017 and we were way, way out here. The pendulum <laughs> was way out here with Oxycontin and, mm -hmm. you know, the Purdue family marketed that so well and, you know, convinced pharmacy and, and physicians that this was a miracle drug and it was non-addictive and blah, blah, blah. We know the bullshit that was all part of that. And then 2017, they changed the prescribing guidelines and the pendulum swung way over here. <laughs> and all these uh, people that we had created addiction for now could not get any drugs and were driven to the black market. And people that legitimately needed things for pain couldn't get things now and were driven to the back mar black market. And our pendulum still hasn't kind of evened out in the middle where we can go case by case, you know, mm -hmm. I think, I think physicians are scared of all, all the, the lawsuits that may rain down on them for, for poor prescribing. 
I always had so much faith in in pharmacies for pharmacists, you know, just saying no. I think pharmacists were so intimidated by doctors sometimes that they didn't speak their full truth about, you know. I remember Tyler had a accident and and had surgery on his hand and the surgeon had written uh, written a prescription for him. And I think Tyler was on an antidepressant or something. And he went to the pharmacy to pick it up. And the pharmacist said, you can't take these two things together. And this pharmacist, the surgeon was not happy that he was called out on this. And this pharmacist did not back down and they changed his medication. Mm. So, yeah, I think there's been so, so many issues there. And I, I tend to believe that physicians get very arrogant and pharmacists, you do as we ask you to do. And um, I, I think it's great. Those pharmacists that actually stand up and say, no, it's not right. It's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you said a moment ago about fear. I, I see, well, an issue with, like you've described with, with Ryan's family physician and and then I think about the policymakers in our province, at least, or our country, but in our province, the general theme there is a lack of courage. Yeah. To <laughs> a lack of courage to to be bold and to make a change, or to stand up, or to use your voice, or to just reach out with empathy and not be so concerned about litigation. And I mean, imagine if if Ryan's physician had of approached you like a a grieving human instead of with like a defensive response, what difference that could have made. Yeah. I, I mean, I could have seen us sitting down and talking about it and I really needed that. I needed to, you know, talk this through and, you know, because there was that metabolite of, of cocaine in there, there was never, I, I could have never ever gone and said, well, this physician killed my son yeah. because somewhere Ryan and, and they were going to, throw that in there and throw it at me no matter, you know, what I believed about what the physician did. I mean, I'm sure she just, when the toxicology report came out, she just went, whew, like uh, there, we can blame it on the cocaine. If that was a very interesting scenario, you know, when Ryan died and the coroners come and his medication, he'd spilled it all out on, on the table beside his bed. So I knew that there was mass confusion there. So they gathered all the medication up and counted it and everything, put it in bottles and stuff like that. They stripped Ryan's room looking for things and they did find this brand new, never being used pipe. And um, it was in a drawer somewhere. And so they gave me the drugs after they made their records and I brought them home. And about three hours later, the RCMP arrived and said, we need to confiscate those drugs. There's a dangerous amount of narcotics in there. And I'm like, great. So you let my son have a dangerous amount of narcotics. Mm -hmm. Anyways, when I got the coroner's report or the pathologist and he writes, you know, they write a note about exactly what happened. And he said, so at the scene, uh, this is what was confiscated. And they listed all the medications and they listed cocaine. And I said, there was no cocaine there. And so I phoned up the coroner and I said, open Ryan's file. Tell me what you confiscated on, on the site. So she told me it was all, it's all prescription prescription medications and I said no cocaine she said no we didn't confiscate any cocaine mm. so she said if you really want to clear it up phone the RC RCMP went through the whole scenario with the RCMP there was no co cocaine so I sent a letter to the pathologist and I said you have to amend this report because there was no cocaine confiscated at that scene and I thought that whole thing colored what happened and yeah. they were going to blame it on the illicit yeah. instead yeah. of the prescription. Yeah. And that doctor, when she got this remedial, you know, take these two courses, which it's a suggestion, Nathan, Nathan, you probably know this in the disposition 
You don't have to do it. It's a suggestion that you do it. And I thought, you know, two courses and my son's dead. You know, it just did not balance. It didn't balance. Yeah, I, there was a big switch there. And I'm, I'm thinking back to that time and I can remember the amount of narcotics that were going out of the pharmacy. And I think the there's a lot of physicians out there who, you know, were, were trying to do their best with the guidelines, but because of the way that Oxycontin especially was pushed, I mean, I, I can remember specifically calling a physician where I, I had a, I had a patient who had a chronic pain issue, but the the number of, uh, I think she was doing, uh, was four 80 milligram Oxycontins plus two tabs of 20 milligram IR, PRN up to eight a day. And she was, you know, maybe 110 pounds. Now there's, it's true. There's, you know, you can, if you work your way up gradually, you could get to, uh, you know, I've since seen doses that exceed that, but the fact that her boyfriend would come in with her and he would pay for all the the drugs in cash and he had a big, like it, the writing was pretty much on the, on the wall. As far as I, I was concerned, I could see what was happening. But when you talk to the doctor, you, you never know exactly what's going on. But I, I think there was some instances where there was, you know, it was always all the way to the, the side of, doctors being involved in in flagrant scams like the doctor that got caught there in Ontario with $400,000 cash and 20 pails full of Oxycontin in his Ferrari. Um, so there's that that was going on. And then there was other physicians that were trying to ride the line with chronic pain. And because the way our medical system is and still is, I, I could see how things could get out of control. But then it comes back to you know, I know that Pharmanet would have been flagging, like when, when we process a script, it will come up, you know, danger, danger, danger. But I mean, they flag everything. So it's the whole thing turns into this machine where it's, it's kind of, we're trying to churn out scripts. The doctor's trying to get through the day and people fall through the cracks. And, and then there's, you know, it, there's doctors where like four, when you're telling me they're on four Zopaclone at night to sleep and oxazepam and, you know, some kind of a narcotic that's today that would be considered outrageous. Like, I think you'd probably lose your license maybe even for that. Um, it's so far out of the guidelines like that. There's no indication for four Zopaclone. If you're talking 7.5, there's no indication for 30 milligrams plus a, plus a benzo. So yeah. Um, and I, I would suspect that there are, are people who have, before the guidelines changed, there, there's probably a number of people who were chronic pain patients who got overprescribed and, and met the same fate, unfortunately. And now, yeah, you're right with the pendulum swing. It's, I think it's got a ways to go yet. So you had this going on with, uh, with the loss of, of Ryan. And so you're, you're advocating for better use of resources in the in the healthcare system in the meantime you've got a, another son uh, and he's uh he's the younger of the two i think uh tyler and then so if, can you tell us what happened in that case because this is a a bit of a different scenario so tyler was he, a totally different kid than than ryan he was um my yeah, if you saw pictures of my kids together you you'd wonder if they were related except that they both had the same cleft in their chin. Ryan was blonde with blue eyes and Tyler had uh, black hair and chocolate brown eyes. And Ryan was uh, shorter, a little bit heavier set. And Tyler was six foot one. And he had major success in school and with athletics and friends. And he was, he was a real adventure when they were little kids uh, even though Tyler was the younger, he was kind of the leader and it would be Ryan that would run home and tell me, uh, mom, Tyler's climbed to the top of the tree and can't get down. You know, Ryan would be the one that would come for help when Tyler had done something crazy. So he, he was very entrepreneurial and, uh, adventuresome. He got all his scuba diving tickets, including a saturation diving ticket 
and started traveling the world with that and then got very into rock climbing and then fell in love with Thailand and ended up living in Thailand uh, for 10 years, uh, you know, within a few months speaking fluent Thai and one with the people and 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 loved it and married a Thai girl and and had a little boy and so was living a very idyllic life had built a business over there and um, they, they had a home and and then the tsunami hit the coast of Thailand on Boxing Day in 2004 and totally wiped out Tyler's business. His home killed a lot of people he loved and 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 worked with. And he sent uh, his wife and his young boy home to us because of the threat of disease with all the things that had happened over there. And he stayed and helped the rebuild for some of his friends that um, were Thai and were always going to be there. And then he came home and I think, you know, was probably dealing with some post-traumatic stress that, you know, we just didn't realize. And Tyler being Tyler would have never admitted that anything was going on in his life. And I think it was a real challenge for him. He came back and, you know, he's, he's, in his thirties and he's got to build this business up again. He's got to build a business and house a family. And um, so he was doing that built a masonry business that was doing really well and got back to his Canadian lifestyle and was playing football on the weekends and actually ruptured his Achilles playing football one Sunday afternoon and um, had the surgery the next morning and was sent home with a prescription of Oxycontin. And I think it was the perfect storm. Comes home with some post-traumatic stress. He's He's got the pain issues. Life is difficult, challenging. He's got a lot of worries, a lot of stuff on his plate. And he, he takes some opioids and everything looks brighter. Everything's a little easier to deal with and to contend with. And I kind of saw it happening. And, you know, back then I just knew nothing about opioid addiction and um, I would talk to him about it. And, you know, you got to stop taking these pills and, you know, and then his brother died and his, his substance use escalated to heroin. And uh, we spent the next five really tragic years trying to get help for Tyler. We had horrific things happen because of the substance use. He overdosed once, I think, which was a almost a on-purpose overdose because he was fighting with, he and his wife had split up and he was fighting with his girlfriend. And he actually, what do you call it, aspirated, got sick and aspirated and ended up spending nine days on life support in the hospital and hung himself one afternoon from my balcony. And I don't know if that was in extreme withdrawal or something else going on, but his son, Mac was 10 at the time. And Mac and I supported his body weight until first responders came. And there was, there was just always constant traumas, you know, assaults and, uh, living in that world is dangerous and uh, you bring some of it home with you and and you leave the house and it happens to you. And so I was on this, you know, trying to find the help Tyler needed without under, really understanding what that help was. You know, back then it was my whole thing was, well, you just stop, you know, you just you just stop taking the pills. You just you just stop doing it. Like you've got a family and we love you and you love them. And why can't you just stop? And I, I had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, unfortunately, it took me after he died to, to figure it all out. And um, so he, he lived with us, he and his son lived with us and, and uh, he got into a 12 step program and I thought he was doing pretty well but they got him to do a step four. And I don't know if you know anything about the step program, but that's taking a moral inventory of yourself and which is very hard to do when you've lived the life 
Tyler had been living and I kept telling him, don't do, you're not ready for a step four and you can't do it alone. And, and he did it. And then on the 14th of January, he was going to go to the gym with my husband, but we went into his room and he was like, I hadn't seen a peaceful sleep in years. And he was just, we just couldn't wake him up. And then everything went wrong for him after he woke up. My husband was out in Winfield working and his car was there and I had my car downtown and the friend that was going to pick him up and take them to a meeting didn't show up and he didn't have a vehicle and, you know, things just weren't working and he decided to um, call uh, Dial-A-Dope and, um, you know, they deliver right to your home and, um he thought he had bought two points of heroin and it was actually two points of pure fentanyl. There wasn't a grain of heroin in it. So he would have used, thinking it was heroin, the same amount of heroin as he always used. And um, so I actually ended up following the ambulance from the ambulance bay down on Lawrence right to his front door. And there were ambulances and police cars and and um fire trucks and uh i went in and was there as they worked on him but uh, yeah didn't work mm. so left with uh his two children and um what do we do now you know yeah, it's a, a good question. So, I mean, when you when you told me this when I when I met you, I wondered how a person finds the strength to continue on. Can you give us some kind of an indication of I mean, for a parent losing a child is is the worst thing imaginable. You lost both your sons in you know, under similar circumstances, what were you, how did you find the strength? Where, what did you draw on to, to get through? And what do you do these days to keep going? Is it the advocacy that, that keeps you moving forward? Yeah, I think when, when Ryan died, I, um, I kind of didn't leave my front deck for about two years. And, uh, uh, of course started, was starting in the struggle with Tyler at the same time. And, um, and then when Tyler died, I, um, I thought if, if I do that, if I let myself go down that rabbit hole, I'll, I'll never ever come out. And I have a daughter that has a daughter and I had these two grandchildren and, and my parents are still alive and siblings and my husband and, you know, somewhere in me, I had this sense of responsibility to, I had to be there for these people. I was a key part of their lives. And um, so it was really quickly after Tyler died, I I, I just knew I, I had to, I had to do something. And I, I was angry enough. I was, you know, full of rage for so many things. And, and, the system, number one, and of course, I wanted, I was all on the criminal side of it, and I wanted the dealer, I would have shot him if I could have found him, and, you know, there was, so then I got approached by Mom Stop Harm, and I started to learn all the things they learned, and, and were teaching me, and I just knew that this was a battle I was going to take on in memory of my boys, in honor of their struggle, give them a voice they never, ever had and make sure that there weren't families like mine that were out there suffering the way we suffered, not just with their deaths, but with the use when they were, you know, and all the trauma that caused and, and the lying in bed at night waiting for the phone to ring and, and, and it be something really horrible and I just knew if I could get out there 
and help save some families from from this it was it was something i i needed to do and i i do it to honor my boys um i do it to help people save their children because you know as mothers and and, and parents and particularly mothers because that's what i know is being a mother there there's nothing more important to us than than our kids and and saving our kids and and uh we need help sometimes doing that and there's never been more help out there than what these advocacy groups offer the 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 support and the knowledge and the, the teachings and the hand holding and you know i go to the hospital and sit with parents with their kids you know just hanging on by a thread because of the substance use and i go downtown and i help those people that live on the street and the other day i took dilly bars to some kids that you know it was hot and they have nothing and half of them are nodding off so i have naloxone kits and and dilly bars and you know it's just i need them to know that they're important and their lives matter uh and I always think, had my boys ended up ever ended up on the street, which they never did, I would like to think there would have been a mom out there or somebody that would have helped them. And um, so I'm not I'm that person out there doing that. And mm -hmm. some days it's it's really triggering, and I go home and and cry and. Um, the suffering is so awful to witness and um you know the deaths are you know their sufferings over it it's just to watch them suffer before is is so awful so yeah i i think it keeps me moving forward some days i want to say fuck it it's not working these people are going to die there's nothing i can do about it hundred thousand people in british columbia are using drugs and we're not going to be able to save them and then then i change my focus to okay let's let's look at the kids and and see how we can help with prevention and awareness and and I want to shake some of those adults that aren't paying attention and not having these conversations with their children about how important they are to them and how we need to keep them safe and how open the line of communication has to be so we can have normalized conversations about what's actually happening out in the world. Not what our rose-covered glasses want to tell us. Mm -hmm. What is actually happening out there? That seems to be a key component of every loss that I witness is the obfuscation of communication by stigma. In both of your cases, if the doors of communication were open, you know, even between you and your sons and uh, your extended family, healthcare professionals, if it, if there wasn't that fear of of a shameful kind of judgment from another person, and they were able to discuss openly what they were going through, exactly what kind of drugs they were using, you got to think that that would have made a difference. That and having access, I mean, that goes all the way to the to the safe supply issue too. I mean, right. if, if we could grow up as a society and stop with this nonsense where we're pretending that people don't use drugs, if we could get rid of that idea and take a realistic look at the situation and then move towards policy that allows people to, you know, if, if whether it started from a prescription and now it's a chronic pain issue and their pain is not being met successfully through the usual routes, or whether it's a recreation thing, it really doesn't matter. Uh, what we need is a supply that's somewhat regulated or ideally completely regulated. Well, you can go and get a regulated supply of cigarettes and alcohol and 
prescriptions from a drugstore, but you can you cannot go and get a regulated supply of of you know it's 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 poison. It's just toxic and and poison. And I was never like shame has never been a part of my. I've never been ashamed of my boys. Um, felt so badly for the wounds inflicted on them in life that made, you know, it easier to get into, you know, the, the self-medicating and the, and the numbing and, and, um, you know, like killed me their, their suffering, but I was never ashamed of them and I was never afraid to speak out about it or to have conversations, you know, like now with my grandchildren, I mean, this is dinner conversation. Mm-hmm. This is this is normalized conversation, talking about drugs and and drug use, and um, you know even to the point of. I grew up in the seventies, and there were lots of drugs, and they were real drugs. You know, I tell the kids we'd buy what we called a nickel bag of grass, and you'd have to smoke the whole bag to get high. <laughs> You know, and you had a cough so bad by the time you were finished, it wasn't really worth it. But mescaline was mescaline. And, mm. and you know, you know, we experimented. Yeah. Um, we didn't get caught in, you know, this really super addictive shit that's out there on the market now. Can you... This might be a difficult thing to do. I'm not sure. But I wonder if you could try to think back to when you had that reaction you spoke about where you 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 did the the knee jerk, let's go kill the dealer, you know, because a, a lot of parents, a lot of people, I'll just say a lot of people who aren't familiar with harm reduction, safe supply. You know, we've we've lived our whole lives with this, uh, you know, the dare program rhetoric, the nonsense where we're going to win this war on drugs. And anyone with a brain in their head at this point, I think, can see that that's not going to happen. But I think you went through probably a fast evolution where maybe, you know, you had that that rage and you wanted to direct it at the at the dealer and you wanted to make a difference that way. And then you started learning about these 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 things that mom stopped the harm we're doing. Was it a difficult kind of thought process to, to kind of redirect your anger towards policy or? Well, you know, so we had all this information in Tyler's phone. Uh, We had the dealer's name, his street name, and the cops were very familiar with who he was he ran with a, a gang called the kids and the police were very familiar with that. We had the phone number and I wanted this sack taken off the street, like right now, find him, take him off the street. And, you know, they said it wasn't possible. They could never approve it. Da, 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 da. So then when I talked to people like people from, from mom, stop the harm, I had to understand that Zach was probably as sick as Tyler was. And he was selling drugs to keep himself in a supply of drugs. Mm -hmm. And I have one thing I'll always hold out on. And if Zach knew it was 100% fentanyl, he could have given my son a chance at living by telling him that. Yeah. This is fentanyl, go slow. It's not heroin. Maybe Zach didn't know. So I still don't have a problem with going after the supplier. You know, I think they're, excuse my friends, pieces of shit that are manufacturing garbage in their basements. They're not chemists. They have no idea what they're doing. They're mixing this stuff up in a magic bullet. They'll put anything in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've heard dog dewormer, uh, anything in it. And uh, I have I have no compassion or 
anything for them. I just, I think they're the lowest of the low. And, you know, people will say to me, well, why are they trying to kill their customers? And I said, oh, wait a minute. Don't give them that much credit. Like, honest to God, these people don't have morals or ethics and and they don't care. And they don't take IDs. If you're, if you're, doesn't matter if you're 12 years old, if you've got $20 in your pocket, you're a customer. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff I hate. I have to acknowledge that Tyler, maybe in times of his life when things were desperate, he was selling drugs to keep himself in his own drugs. So it didn't take me long to make the switch from, you know, it really isn't, it's more of a medical issue than it is a criminal justice one. And, um, you know, our system will not recognize that mental health and substance use are dance partners. And, you know, we don't know, we don't necessarily know which one came first, but they're dance partners and one's always leading. And what our system does, our siloed system is you'll take somebody to the mental health side of things or the brain health, which is the appropriate language now. And they'll say, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't for us. This is an addiction matter. So we take it over to addiction and they say, oh, no, 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 no. This is all brain health that you have to, well, these people have to work together on this problem. And, and um, so that's what I'm angry about now is, is we have some real good evidence about what would help in this situation decrim was a little bit of a joke because because 2.5 milligrams i don't think they were arresting for and we know that people deeply entrenched in substance use use 10 at least 10 times that much in a day and now we're forcing them to go out to different dealers into more dangerous situations more and more often and I think it's going to fail after this three-year exemption we've gotten. It's it's going to fail. It w- it was never set up to save lives because it's still a toxic supply. So the only thing that really is going to save lives, if that's what mankind is interested in, is safer supply. Yep. And yep. why isn't it? I mean, I know it's complicated. You know, it's... It's individual by individual. We can't just go and stand on the corner and be selling diacetyl morphine to people. It, you know, your tolerance is different than your tolerance. And, you know, it's it's got to be figured out and balanced. And, you know, and we're going to connect you with a medical system that says you're not a dirty junkie that doesn't deserve help. You deserve help. And we're going to give it to you. Yeah. Helen, I'm, and and I think my question actually fits in with what you're what you're just talking about there. That I wanted to ask you about grief, how your grief was either received or communicated back to you by, with the exception of the Mom Stop the Harm community, but of the the larger community of our province, or of your own, just in, in your in your world. My parents lost a child. My grandparents lost two children, and one of them was to cancer, sort of a nice, clean cancer scenario, and the other one was very much about mental health and substance use and died as a result of complications of his mental health and substance use. And what I recall was the difference in how my grandparents were treated by their community between the son who died of cancer and the son who died from mental health and substance use. And is on now panning out to the policy level, is this all about this icky discomfort that our society feels and our policymakers feel? Yeah. So the best way to to describe it to you is the moms and dads of the kids that were on that Humboldt bus got a Mm -hmm. hell of a lot more sympathy than the moms and dads who lost their kids to substances. The right. whole world rallied around that 15 kids that died. Yeah. We're, we're losing seven in a day and nobody blinks. Yeah. So we have this very disenfranchised grief 
our kids deserved it because they wanted it, because they asked for it. And that's why we had to create these support groups. We we needed a group. So I could go in and sit down and say, my kid was actually injecting heroin into his arms and, you know, it killed him. It wasn't heroin, but fentanyl. And, um, and someone wrapped their arms around me and say, oh, my God, your child died. Because that's the bottom line. It, it doesn't yeah. matter if it was cancer or, or substance use. My child died. And I deserve the same sympathy as anybody else that lost their child. So, yeah, that, that disenfranchised grief really spurned us on to these support groups and, and non-judgmental, compassionate support for, for families. And I totally understand about your grandparents. It must have been horrible. From, but their pain was no different for one child than it was for the other there, you know, they were there. Absolutely. Children. Yeah. And, and then they're forced into this stigma and shame thing where, you know, I still know families that have lost their, their kids to substance use that say my son died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want anybody, you know, knowing I, I get into some pretty nasty battles at dinner parties that I'm kind of not always invited to anymore because <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm very vocal about people's lack of compassion and understanding. Yeah. Well, rightfully so. I mean, like I, I mentioned to you before, I think a, your situation and when we, me and Corey discovered mom stopped the harm, we kind of laughed about hell having no fury, like a group of mothers, spurned or scorned or grieving in this case right but yeah i mean nobody should have to do a quarter of the grieving that you've done helen we've talked about a lot of different things here is there anything that you want to put out there as far as a a message to other parents who might be in a similar situation either before they lose a child or after they've lost a child is there anything you'd like to say to them Well, before you lose a child, I want to say to you, don't buy into the tough love bullshit. Mm, Thank you. The the toughest love you're ever going to find is a mom struggling to help save her child. And that rock bottom is dead in in today's, the landscape of today's Mm -hmm. toxic supply. And you know, I, I just talked to a mom the other night, first time I ever talked to her and very shy mom. And hopefully I'm going to meet her in the next little while. And, and she said to me, you know, I, 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 I let him come home. And, you know, so she said I was kind of enabling him. And I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, don't ever say that. I said, you are his mother. You took your child in when he was sick. And I said, if someone tells you that's enabling, tell them to go fly a kite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's not enabling. That's got to die. That's got to go yeah. away. Yeah. Th- those those words really, really have to, to die. But people have to remember that nobody aspires to addiction. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to. I'm going to think I'm going to become a heroin addict because that, that life looks pretty cool. It, you know, it happens and they, they suffer far more than we can ever realize, you know, they're suffering and they actually die doing something they hate, not something they love. And, you know, I always say nice people take drugs and drugs take nice people Mm. and don't give up hope. For your child, because you you just never ever know what might work. And I think I think the parents that did did give up hope, put their kids out on the street or let them go to the street and didn't know where they were and had no connection with them, have got to be in so much pain now. And you know, as much as I grieve. My son came in the night before he died and lifted me up out of my bed and hugged me and told me how much he loved me and how he could have never survived without me in his life. Mm-hmm. 
And I knew that to be true. And I can hang on to that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and after, after you lose them, don't beat yourself up. And know you did the best you could with, with what you knew at the time. And I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. I just wish I'd known more. You know, I, I made this rule in my house. You can live here. You just can't use in my house. And now I would say you can live here. And the only place you can use is in my house. Right. So I would be here if something were to happen to you. Of course. Yeah. So that, that message is, you know, and as, as far as talking to our general society, we have to, you know, learn compassion again and, and to be watching out for one another. We're all humans and we're all going to the same place. And I don't care how much money you have or don't have, we're all going to the same place in the end and to help each other along the road, you know, and, Remember that stigma kills, and we have the ability to, to stop that and maybe change the way we view people who use substances and use people first language instead of, you know, the horrible junkie addict yeah. stuff that, that kept people hiding away in shame, yes. you know, and Find out about harm reduction and you might not agree with every part of it, but there's a lot you would agree for, uh, agree on and learn about decriminalization and safe supply and understand it and, and help us put pressure on the policymakers to do that and actually save lives. Absolutely. How, our government can stomach seven deaths a day in British Columbia is astounds me. Yeah. It astounds us too. Believe me. Yeah. Um, fantastic message to uh, end with Helen. Those are tremendously wise words and I hope that people heed them well. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to to mention about the work you're doing or or are you comfortable leaving it there? No, I think it's great. And I think it's great the kind of stuff you guys do and the more prevention and awareness we can, you know, bring to this whole issue that the better chance we'll have of of someday. I don't know. I don't even know what it what what that is, controlling it or not seeing it or I, I think we're so far away from it. It just makes me sick to my stomach, but mm -hmm. we got to try. I mean, yeah, we got we to try. try. We got to so try. Thanks you guys for what you do. And yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, I know that wasn't an easy conversation, but uh, you really, I think will give some people some, something to think about there. So thank you Why so much for your time. And it's, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you, you guys. Yeah, thank you, Helen. You're remarkable, and I know that our listeners will will agree. And it's just been a yeah. I'm grateful for for what you've brought to us today. Great, for sure. thank you. Okay, Great. everybody, we'll leave okay. it there, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>